Welcome to Biologists Being Basic, a podcast where we talk about basic research, why we care about it, and why you should too. I'm your host and resident basic biologist, Robin Cake. Each episode, I'm joined by fellow scientists as well as non-scientist friends to ask questions, talk science, and have fun. In celebration of Women's History Month and International Women's Day, we thought it would be fun and timely to do an episode where we focus on women in science. In this episode, we have a candid discussion about our own experiences and the women scientists we have looked up to and learned about during our careers. Helping me on today's episode is my B3 co-host, Paige Haas. Hi, I'm Paige. I'm a graduate student in the Krogan Lab at UCSF. And joining us and making sure we stay on point will be our non-scientist, expert humans, and B3 co-hosts, Gina Nguyen. Hi, I'm Gina Nguyen, and I am the Director of Communications and Events for QBI. And Alexa Rocourt. Hi, I'm Alexa, and I am a media and events coordinator at QBI. Thanks, guys. Let's get started. So welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me today. Um, To get us started, I thought maybe we could ease into today's topic by talking about our own experiences as women who work in the sciences and maybe just introducing our listeners to some of our own background. So Paige, what made you want to pursue a career in science? In high school, I had a really influential biology teacher named Gretel von Bargen. Um, She was awesome. Like she just made it really uh, visually accessible for how to visualize processes that are happening inside the cell. And that topic and that kind of knowledge was really interesting to me. And so I just kept pursuing it through undergrad as well. Uh, I really wanted to learn what it was like to generate knowledge of ourselves, you know, that's information that's like so pertinent to us as, you know, humans is figuring out like how life operates on that molecular level. Um, And so I got involved in undergraduate research and then went on to pursue my PhD. Um, And so I've always been really interested in understanding how the molecular mechanisms of disease function in order to improve uh, treatment and the quality of human life. Um, I don't know. Did you guys, like everyone when you're young, asks you, like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Did you have other things you thought you wanted to be before you decided you wanted to be a scientist? Absolutely. (laughs) Yeah, I never said I wanted to be a scientist growing up. Um, My first thing was I wanted to be a veterinarian because I really liked dogs. And I just was obsessed at trying to get our family a dog. Um, And then about like probably fourth grade or fifth grade, I saw the movie Legally Blonde and decided I wanted to be a lawyer. (laughs) Yeah, I always wanted to work with animals. I think that was like the one thing that I wanted to do. And I think I got excited about science because of that. Like when we were in elementary school or anything else, the only time you could be outside or like get to see any type of animal or do anything or have any hands-on activity was for a science class. And then, yeah, in high school, my teacher was actually a, a chemistry teacher, the one who like really got me excited about science. She was a really great chemistry teacher. And then I had her again for AP Chem, Miss Curry, (laughs) Miss Curry, shout out to Miss Curry. So she would have all these really cool, exciting experiments where we like turn things different colors or we like shrunk things and we got to like make a whole bunch of stuff. So yeah, it was like, science was always like the cool hands-on subject for me anyways. 
It's fun that we uh, each had a woman science teacher who uh, brought us into women being women in science. Gina, Alexa, did you guys ever think about wanting to be a scientist or your guys' career trajectory is quite different from ours? <laughs> yeah, I was listening to your response and thought about my own science teacher, also a woman, very cool. Her name was Becky Smith. Um, she taught biology and it was very cool, but I always leaned towards the more literature, writing, yearbook, design classes, which maybe explains my career path um, a little bit. So I've always loved telling and listening to people's stories. And so I pursued a bachelor in journalism and graphic design, thinking, you know, it was the perfect storytelling package. And then I developed a passion specifically for telling the stories of underrepresented groups through the media. And then I found my way to science when I interned with QBI a few years ago. And there I quickly discovered that there are many groups with untold stories, successes and struggles including women in science, which QBI loves to highlight. So although I did not specialize in science outreach initially, working in the field has definitely made me realize that there's so much potential for um, telling important stories in all fields, including science. Yeah, hearing your experiences made me, or reminded me of my science teacher, another female um, science teacher. Uh, her name was Mrs. Hawthorne. And she made science seem so exciting. She always came up with the best analogies. She was the one who gave me the analogy about um, bacteria and antibiotics and how um, they're like insects. And you could you could try to keep combating the insects with with like raid or or chemicals, but eventually they'll get used to it and become. Um, kind of immune to the antibiotics or they, they find it tasty. Um, so she was always really good with analogies and, and I'm reminded of her. Um, but in terms of background, my background is actually in the arts. Um, you know, I, I grew up in a household full of musicians and um, had always found music to be my passion. And I um, moved out here and started working in music tech and the application I was working on is it was a lip sync application. Um, and we would acquire users to lip sync in front of the camera and put on makeup and like look really cute for these lip sync videos. And I remember feeling so exhausted by that process because, um, you know, I would spend many hours trying to obtain all these new these new users for an app that I really didn't believe in. So I reached a point in my life at, at a crossroads and I, I needed to find more purpose and thought to myself, if I'm going to encourage um, teenage girls to do something, I'd rather uh, encourage them to pursue STEM or to think more analytically as opposed to performing, you know, selfie lip sync videos. Um, so that's that's pretty much what, what brought me here. I wanted to ask if there was anyone that you looked up to either in the media or in your school or anywhere else in your life, your family, that encouraged you to really pursue, you know, your career, to pursue science, to pursue the type of 
dream that you had? <laughs> yeah, I have a, a clear example uh, of the path ahead of me in Kelsey because she's, you know, my older sister and she was interested in similar things and uh, came into the PhD program at UCSF two years ahead of me. Um, and so just, you know, being able to see her path and making it feel like it was accessible for me, that was uh, a really big advantage that I had in feeling like uh, this was an opportunity that I could pursue. Um, and then, you know, even just uh, being able to get into the same program and choose to come here, there were a lot of factors that went into that decision. Um, ultimately, you know, I chose to come here for the research that I could do, but it's been such a bonus and such a fun thing to be able to have Kelsey here as well. I don't have like someone that I would say I typically like looked up to and thought like, oh, okay, I want to be like this person or that's the type of scientist I want to be or that's the type of professor I want to be, um, at least not until grad school. And then in grad school, I had a lot of teachers that at that point then I could look up to and say, okay, I want to be a professor like this. I want to teach students in a way that engages them on several levels. I want to do science in this way, the way that my PhD advisor at UC Irvine did, you know, I want to do, I want to pursue science in a way that I find um, fulfilling and ethical. And at that point I had uh, people that I looked up to, but growing up, like, I can't visualize a scientist in my mind that I looked up to <laughs> and thought like, oh, I want to be like that person, um, which is, I guess, kind of sad on, on some level that we don't look up to scientists anymore, like even the people that want to be scientists. <laughs> I don't know. They're hard to come by, um, famous scientists, that is. And, and again, that's why I was really interested in taking my efforts to science um, because there's a lot of scientists who are fans of art, but it doesn't work vice versa the other way. So not a lot of artists are familiar with scientists. And I think, um, I mean, to be honest, I've, I've found scientists in the media. And as an example, there's one movie called Hidden Figures. And it's about this mathematician, Captain Johnson, um, who um, worked for NASA and um, she was incredible. And not only did she have to uh, face the challenges women face in science, but she was a black woman um, working for NASA and um, had to deal with a lot of challenges. So before working here, I would find out about scientists through the media. Um, and now, um, you know, I, one name that pops up is Jennifer Doudna. She won the Nobel Peace Prize. 2020. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do feel lucky to have this level of access to science that most people don't. Yeah. So Paige, are there any non-scientific or non-science related parts of the job that you've noticed or you think have favored say someone who's a man versus someone who's a woman? Are there parts that just other people wouldn't even think of? Um, like for me, what comes immediately to mind is like scientific networking um, and just being in the room where decisions are made, being in the room and having a voice in 
non-official settings. So the ability for people to just go and talk about the project, talk about the science over, you know, drinks or a beer or whatever networking venue that they're picking tends to favor men over women, partially because women tend to be the caretakers for families. So time constraints can kind of provide, you know, limitations. But also I, I think sometimes women are excluded from things, uh, especially if they're a little bit more shy or not quite as outgoing. Um, and if you're not in the room at the time, you don't get to, your voice doesn't get heard or you don't get to hear what other people are saying. I don't know, have you guys experienced anything else? Yeah, I think I noticed this in my first year of my PhD program in particular. I felt like um, in classes, you know, the people that were more vocal or, um, you know, receiving more positive feedback from faculty were of a certain personality type that was a little bit more assertive, confident, you know, self-assured, um, things that, you know, anyone can have that personality type, but because of the way, you know, boys and girls are socialized growing up, it's more likely that men have that kind of personality. Um, especially showing up in a professional setting where a lot of the faculty that we're being trained by are also men. Um, so I did start to notice that uh, I felt like I was at a bit of a disadvantage because I uh, was more uh, reserved or um, a little less strong in the way that I worded things, was more open to other opinions and perspectives, and it felt like uh, that was less uh, respected or rewarded by uh, the people that were training us. So when I first started as a grad student or when I first started as a postdoc, anytime I'm like brand new to a place or I'm trying to get a feel for the environment I'm in or the scientific level that I'm in, I'm a lot more cautious with what I say. And I don't like to speak up unless I'm pretty confident in what I'm saying. So I'm I'm much more cautious about offering my opinion or offering my thoughts until I feel more comfortable or if I'm very sure of what I'm saying. I mean, certainly now when I'm more comfortable with people, I, I feel a little bit more free to voice my opinion and to say what I think um, because I, I trust the people that I'm with and I trust that they know when I'm speaking Sometimes I'm I'm thinking through the problem or I'm asking questions, but I think a lot of the women colleagues or colleagues that I have that are women are a little bit on the more cautious side, erring on the don't speak until you know for sure that you're correct, as opposed to just thinking out loud, <laughs> um, which is, uh, I, I think, good and bad. Like I... I don't think that when you just think out loud, that's a bad thing. It just is a, a different way of going about things. And um, yeah, I, I I think you put it very correctly as the way that we're socialized growing up. Um, and I think also our abilities to make mistakes and how mistakes are perceived um, by one gender versus another. I was actually thinking of like how um, when we give presentations. And actually, Zoom is kind of a huge equalizer in that regard. Now that we give presentations over Zoom, I, I feel like that's a very big gender equalizer. Whereas before, 
when I give talks in front of people, I always wear heels. I always dress as professionally as possible and wear makeup so that I look older. Um, and I just, I think for men, typically they already are on average taller. So they're a little bit more imposing. They have, I think, a more imposing nature. So it just, um, implies authority and confidence as opposed to like having to earn that authority and confidence through your speaking. I don't know. You know, yeah, you brought up a good point. Um, both, um, Paige and, and Robin, um, you know, from, from my perspective, uh, as a non-scientist expert human, from my perspective, you both are fabulous, uh, Presenters, I would never have guessed that um, you felt that you had to be a certain way um, other than your normal self to present, like wearing the heels and trying to look older with makeup and trying to m match up or measure up to male scientists. And um, I wonder if you felt that way with your peers, right? So while you're in school, did you feel that the male scientists in your class, did, did you feel as though they had an advantage because of the way they presented themselves? Um, let's say there is an award out and you had to compete against this award. In the back of your mind, did you think that your male peers were more likely to win recognition or award? Maybe I'll go first. Um, Cause I think this is a really good question. Uh, I have been incredibly fortunate through my youth, through the majority of my adult life as well. Um, I grew up in, a, I think what most people would consider a very liberal household. Um, I have a younger sister and uh, both of my parents like supported me through everything and told me like girls can do anything. And the community I grew up in was the same. Girls could do anything. We could play any sport we wanted. And we often succeeded in sports in the area that I grew up in and were in the news and, you know, were high achieving. And there, you know, where I grew up, it was never like you can't do something because you're a girl or you're less than because you're a girl. Um, even through college, I felt the same way. And I would say through grad school, I continued to feel the same way. I, I never felt like I was at a disadvantage because I was a, a girl. Um, it wasn't really until I started interacting with people outside of where I grew up um, and started going to conferences, both national and international conferences, and, and really started interacting with other people outside of my like my bubble, I guess I would say, where I noticed people started treating me differently. Um, so like, I would never really think about how I presented myself until I had those kind of aha moments. Um, I was so naive that I didn't even recognize it at first. It was, I just felt so bad. I was like, didn't understand what I'd done wrong. Um, and then you know, after it happened a few times, I realized what it was. And it was because I was a woman and not a man um, that I was being treated differently. And then I started, you know, after getting a bunch of comments of how, you know, like, oh, like, you know, 
are you a, you know, a student or are you this and that? And it's like, no, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I, I, and I'm older and I am established. And so it, I started to then change the way I presented just because I didn't want to have to have those conversations of like, this is my project. I'm not an undergrad. I'm not working for someone else. I've done all the work. I, you know, this is, this is mine. And, um, and I just didn't want to have those conversations anymore. So I would make myself taller and make myself look older. Um, because of that, but I was very lucky growing up because I, I didn't, at the very least, I was unaware if it happened to me that I was being treated differently because I was a girl. And also, um, Paige, you know, you talked about, um, uh, like how men carry themselves with, with, you know, this certain amount of confidence that not a lot of females carry. And I, I'd like to hear more about that because I've certainly faced that in, um, in tech and other um, spaces and environments as well. But um, as a, as a scientist, your main um, commodity is, is your knowledge and your work, right? So, so what is that like? Yeah, I think the um, confidence to be able to speak up when you're not entirely sure about something, Robin alluded to earlier, um, feeling comfortable to take more risks with uh, how you explore um, new concepts. Uh, that's something that I observed in my classes, certainly. Um, and then also, uh, you know, a big part of academic discussion is disagreement or going back and forth or debating. And I am very quick to back off on my stance and to say, I will look into that and I will consider your viewpoint because I... I'm not going to tell you that I absolutely know this for certain. Um, and I've found that it tends to be the case that perhaps men are more comfortable holding their ground um, and are less quick to consider that a different opinion could be true. Mm -hmm. It's not even just that they're um, un unable to see another opinion might be true. I think it's that uh, it's usually expected that a woman will concede a point in a lot of situations, like not just science. Like I'm, I'm not even speaking about science in this case, but that like, it's, it's sometimes expected that you'll compromise. And even though a lot of people are progressive and do not adhere to these kind of um, heteronormative like stereotypes, it, it is kind of, at least in, um, you know, American, um, the United States culture that, there are certain gender specific roles that are expected. And most of those roles typically happen to have like the women kind of compromise and concede. And um, I think that carries over into the workplace sometimes as well. I think this is rooted in a history of gender constructs, right? And I think it's not just in science, it's in all fields that I hear people dealing with this. But I do think that with time, more and more women are coming forward, especially in the last decade, about this, um, which is encouraging. But I also ask myself, you know, what does it take in STEM for women to have this confidence early on? Is it about having mentors who look like you or who encourage you to think a certain way? Um, how, what does that look like and when did it start? 
One thing I think about a lot is um, that it's not necessarily that women need to become more like men. Like, how do we teach women to become more like men? It's that we need to value the way that, you know, women show up in a professional setting and different personality types. Uh, We tend to really value the personality type that is compatible with how boys and men are socialized as professional and authoritative and, you know, leadership. But I think if we also value that women are valuable in those roles as well, um, that there's not one personality type that is qualified to fulfill these roles and do a good job, I think that's really important. So it's not about changing the way that women show up in the professional settings. It's about valuing the way that they show up. I I also think it's, right, I don't think we're going to solve the problem in a 45-minute podcast, but I do kind of also agree with your point, though, Alexa, of, you know, at what point do we impose gender stereotypes on people? Um, Because I I do think there, and there's evidence that it's not good for either men or women, (laughs) right? Like that, you know, not all men also are, you know, imposing and authoritative and right. Like that, that is not a natural fit for everybody and certainly not all men. And to like force that on, on anyone is, I would say bad. (laughs) I think we should all be able to show up as we are and be respected and valued as we are. And actually on that topic, I have found that science is like one of the most diverse and open-minded like professional environments that I know of like the people that I've been able to work with in science are from you know all over the world they represent you know a lot of different identities uh you know sexuality gender identity like race there's a huge amount of diversity in STEM it could always be better Um, But I think it is really valued in science um, compared to maybe some other fields. And so I really hope that we continue valuing that and promoting that because that makes for a really enjoyable work environment. When outlining this episode, I was struck with how little I actually knew about historical women in science and and real or, or really how much I learned that was actually based on my education and not how much I learned by just being a scientist myself and knowing other scientists or hearing about it through some other, you know, mode or mechanism. Um, And so, you know, very little of my education was about uh, scientists in general, but definitely not women scientists. Um, I think I was trying to go through before I did some research and list the number of historical scientists I knew who were women. And I'm very sad to say I had like, I think the obvious two. (laughs) And then I hit a wall and I was like, oh man, that can't be it. And I'll I'll list them so that I don't, uh, so that everyone can know how, how ignorant I was, but like Marie Curie, and then Rosalind Franklin. And I hit those two and then I I went, oh my gosh. And I couldn't think of any. And then as I was doing research, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. Like, I, you know, I was thinking only like biology and chemistry and it was like, okay, 
Sally Ride. Yeah, I was like, okay, yeah, yeah, Sally Ride. And so some of the other names popped up and I, I felt a little bit better, but I was, I don't know, like, could you guys have listed more uh, historical um, historical scientists who are women? Jane Goodall comes to mind. Jane Goodall. I kept it to people who were still, uh, who weren't alive right now. Because I could come up with a bunch of scientists who were alive. And I was like, that seems unfair. That seems unfair. <laughs> um, but yeah, Jane Goodall's a good, yeah. It's funny because you listed the three that I had in mind, which is kind of embarrassing that Marie Curie, um, Lynn Franklin, all the people that we hear about um, in the main media. But Gina made a point earlier that more and more we're learning about scientists, but also women scientists through movies or docu-series, um, things like that. So I think it is coming to the surface. Again, Hidden Figures is a good example. Another one is a documentary called makers women that make, that make america that pbs put out and they have little sections about women in science women in hollywood women in business um so i think if you want to learn you definitely can there's more outreach for that sort of thing these days but i think you're right that in elementary school or even high school it's minimal so that's interesting it seems like we all agree that we wouldn't really name that many women scientists that we learned about growing up, but we could probably name a lot more female scientists now. Um, and I, I won't make us list all of them, but is there anyone who comes to mind now, uh, a female scientist that you, you look to and you think like, oh, this work is so great. And I can think of, you know, exactly what they do. I, People can think of them right off the bat. I know, Gina, you mentioned Jennifer Doudna. Did you want to talk about her a little bit and what you know of her work? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Um, first of all, she's still alive, so I don't know if she qualifies for this game, but um, she just won the Nobel Peace Prize um, on her work in CRISPR. So um, also there is a documentary, a really good documentary about CRISPR that I found on Netflix and it highlights Jennifer Doudna. And it this goes back to Alexa's point on finding out about women scientists through media and, and um, documentaries. It really helps. And I think more people should do that. Um, but, uh, but yeah. So anyways, I, I, I don't know what else to, what else to add um, with Jennifer Doudna, except for uh, she gave a talk for one of our seminars, which is really cool. Um, she's highly respected and, um, and I, I think she's a brilliant woman, um, not only because of, um, of her work on CRISPR, um, but also, um, she's, she's really smart and she makes really good decisions. So I think, um, holistically as a person, she's very, um, impressive. The woman scientist that I that comes to mind for me, I learned about sort of recently. Um, one of my good friends, Rachel Lucero, has a YouTube channel that's called The Sago Show, and she talks about uh, Filipino food and its history. And so a woman scientist came up in that context, actually. Um, her name is Maria Arosa. Um, she's a food scientist from the Philippines who lived from 1893 to 1945. 
Um, and so, you know, learning about her through uh, Rachel's Sago show, and then that led me to a Food 52 article by Amelia Ramp and an Esquire article by Mario Alvaro Limos. Um, and so Maria Arosa's early life took place during the Philippine fight for independence from colonization. Um, there was the successful revolution and declaration of independence from Spain, like three years after she was born, and then shortly followed by colonization by the United States. Um, and so this backdrop really gives a lot of context for how she used her scientific talent in service of her country throughout her life. Um, so she studied at the University of the Philippines and then at the University of Washington, Seattle, which is my alma mater. So that was exciting to see. Go Huskies. Um, and it was there that she earned degrees in pharmacy and food chemistry. And then when she returned to the Philippines in 1922, um, she used her training in food science to develop food preservation methods and inventing novel recipes to aid in the nation's self-sufficiency. So one great example of this is her invention of banana ketchup, which used bananas that grow abundantly in the Philippines instead of tomatoes that had to be imported from the United States. And I've actually made banana ketchup um, and it's delicious. It's like tangy and slightly sweet. Um, I tried it with some waffle fries and I liked it actually better than regular ketchup. Um, and then an another one of Maria's inventions is Soilac. It's a powdered soybean product that's really rich in nutrients, and it became important during World War II. Um, so during uh, World War II, the Japanese occupied the Philippines, and the internment camps there were really horrible conditions. A lot of people died of starvation. And so Maria's Soilac would be smuggled in to feed prisoners, and it was viewed as like this miracle food because it provided like all the necessary ingredients for survival. And sadly, Maria died in 1945 after being hit by shrapnel during the Battle of Manila. Um, and that battle actually ended Japanese occupation of the Philippines. And then the next year in 1946, the Philippines gained independence from the United States. Um, so I really like Maria Orosa's story. I think it's so powerful in the way that she used her scientific aptitude to advance the causes that were important to her. She used her education to empower like other women in agriculture and science. Uh, she traveled to rural areas in the Philippines to teach women how to raise poultry and preserve food. Um, and she not only invented these recipes, but she also devised a paleoc oven a clay oven for those without access to electrical appliances. Um, and so just learning about Maria Arosa, I'm just struck by how she used science to empower others and improve access to resources for vulnerable groups. And I think she's just a really like shining example of purpose-driven innovation and in science. That's so cool. <laughs> Yeah, like, well done on the research. I definitely did not go that much in depth. I was trying to, like, research uh, a bunch of people. I was struck by how many women died so young but were still so accomplished. Like, there's a whole bunch of lists on the internet that you can find that are, like, famous women scientists or all the women scientists you should know. And a lot of them died very young <laughs> but were so accomplished. I didn't even realize how young Rosalind Franklin was when she died. But she accomplished so much, and it's just remarkable. Um, Alexa, did you want to talk about any scientists that you came across? Yeah. 
one of the women that I learned about is Gladys West. Um, she's still alive, but she was born a long time ago. I think she may be in her 90s now. I think she and her family were originally farmers and she knew that she didn't want to do that. And so she pursued mathematics um, at a time when mostly men were pursuing that subject. But she went ahead and did it anyway and ended up contributing to an accurate mathematical modeling of the shape of the Earth um, and satellite models that were used in today's GPS system. Nice. So I thought that was super cool. Um, everybody, I think, uses the GPS on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I think that's a very um, remarkable contribution that is not often credited to her, or at least not in mainstream media. So that's really cool. And three years ago, she was inducted into the Space and Missiles Pioneers Hall of Fame. So that's super cool. Nice. All right. I don't know if this is going to go in or not, but I thought it would be fun to just ask and see. So I, I did the Google search slash historical figures internet search for historical scientific women. But I'm curious to see, uh, one, if you've heard of this female scientist and two, if you know what she was famous for and what she did. Um, so we'll start off easy. Um, Marie Curie. Can anyone say uh, what she was famous for? Chemistry. I think, was she the first woman to wield the Nobel Prize? Yep. Twice. Do you, uh, do you guys remember the, uh, the big scientific... Uh, Did you have to do with bacteria, viruses? No. She was the, uh, like, radiation, so... Polonium and radium <laughs> were radiation. I was radiation. so off. Radiation. I was way off. Radioactivity, yeah. <laughs> and X-rays. She was. Um, she uh, helped bring X-rays into the field for, um, like the the wars, so that people could do X-rays uh, in the field. Yeah. Also, she's apparently like of like her descendants are all like scientists. <laughs> they like have a series of Nobel Prizes in the family. God, what about her ancestors? I, I don't know. She's from Poland. Um, I, all I could think of when I was doing the research, so she married a, a scientist as well. I was like, man, what a pedigree. Yeah, of course her children all became <laughs> <laughs> <Get> scientists. <laughs> um, okay, number two, Rosalind Franklin. We, I think we've all heard of her as well. Does anyone remember that I guess main thing that she was famous for? Crystallography? X-rays? Yeah. Chemistry? <laughs> Paige probably knows. Yeah. Figuring out that the um, DNA was a double oh, helix. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So even though Watson Crick were, uh, yeah, credited because they had the model, she was the one that had all the data. <laughs> she had the actual evidence for awesome. um the double helix um and and i think kind of hearkening back to Paige's point earlier about um being more cautious and not wanting to speak up or wanting you know like she was very cautious she uh didn't want to go forward with things until she actually had evidence and wanted to you know so that's kind of like one of the reasons why she didn't want to go forward until she had all of her scientific evidence. Um, so, 
Yeah, it gets a little, it just gets harder, man. But I'll just go through the names just to see how many of them we actually recognize. Uh, Rachel Louise Carson. No. She was a marine biologist and conservationist. She's like um, probably more famous for writing than for I mean, like she was a scientist, but like she wrote a lot of books as well. So she wrote the Silent Spring. She was involved in like trying to get um, the regulation on pesticides, like DTT. Um, so she was a big pioneer for like environmental scientists. Um, and there's Gertrude Bell Ellion. Her, I also didn't know, but I feel bad because she was um, a biochemist and a pharmacologist. She won the Nobel Prize in 1988 for physiology or medicine. And she was one of the big innovators for rational drug design. And a, her work um, actually is what led to the creation of AIDS drugs, AZT, <laughs> which I feel like I should have known. I was like, oh man, I, I wish I knew more about her. Um, and she also was involved in the development of azathioprine, which is an immune suppressant drug. It was the first immune suppressant drug, um, uh, and its use in organ transplants. So just like, oh man, I feel like I should have known her. <laughs> I wish I would have known her. This is what, like, I think I, yeah, like going through the list, it was like, yeah, why didn't I learn about these, you know, scientists and their discoveries? Like, I wish I had can't believe we don't know these people yeah but yeah like going through this I was like man a lot of the work like a lot of this work is structural biology a lot of this work is on proteins a lot of the work with you know is pretty seminal and it was it's like man a lot of what I do is based on you know what these women did and being able to and I like never learned about any of them I didn't learn about any of them certainly growing up but not even in college you know, like my education to be a scientist <laughs> did not lead me to these um, women at all. Mm -hmm. This is really helpful and good. It's good to learn these names and um, learn what they've done. It's a great exercise. A really good exercise. Yeah. And there, there should be like a Netflix series on women scientists only yeah it makes me wish I had taken a history of science class in undergrad or something like I feel like that's a big missed yeah. opportunity yeah same I wish my university had offered that <laughs> as a class like I uh, did did you guys actually have that class at your university I'm not sure like I never sought it out but um because I, I guess I was like oh I I don't like history and that's why I'm going to be a scientist but um, I, now looking back, I think that would have been really valuable. I agree. I think that would, that would be a really good course to take. I have a question. Well, I ask this to a lot of people when I'm interviewing women in science. I like to end on this note. I ask people like, what would you, what advice would you give to a young girl entering STEM? What advice would I give? That's so hard. You know, I would probably give the same advice to girls I would give to a guy is the thing. Like, I don't know that I'd have different advice for a woman than for a man. Um, typically my advice uh, centers around trying things and, you know, not being afraid to try something different or try something new. 
um, and being honest with yourself about uh, what you want to do moving forward. So if you have an idea, just go try it. <laughs> there's no rule about it, you know, like there's no one that's going to be, there's, you know, it, it, it's that moment where you realize you're, and I didn't realize it until later in my career, like, oh, I'm the adult in the room. It's my idea and I have to go figure out how to test it and how to do it. And I should seek advice and get people's opinions, but it's really up to me in the end, you know? I think like advice that I might have for uh, someone getting into science is to uh, follow your interests and also keep in mind the things that you find fulfilling. Um, so to not just let solely interests guide you, but to also make sure that uh, your values and the things that you enjoy doing day to day and the things that build you up are um, part of that career as well. Yeah, science is hard because you have to go through, you know, six years of six or seven years of school after your four years of school. And then you spend another six years training to learn how to do something and you try to accumulate all this knowledge and you have to spend all this time reading a lot of pretty dry papers. But um, so, so that's really hard. But I think people can be, you know, scientists and be curious and, and learn about things all the time. So you don't have to be an official, you know, PhD scientist to be a scientist. Um, I agree. I think like um, curiosity, uh, thinking critically and um, engaging with the world around you. I think those are qualities that benefit everyone. Thank you for joining us today in our first episode back from the break where we talk about women in science. We hope you join us next time when we take a look at some of the new research on SARS-CoV-2 potential for host-directed therapies. We want to extend a huge thank you to every person who's doing their part during the pandemic to keep us all safe, to feed us, to heal us, to keep our daily lives running, and to help support researchers and medical professionals who are working to combat the virus. Thank you to everyone who's doing their part in remembering to wash your hands, in keeping up the social distancing, and in wearing your masks when you're out in public. We know that times are hard and confusing, but as vaccines are being distributed, we urge everyone to continue to listen to health experts. We hope our podcast could be a source of information and maybe even entertainment during these challenging times. In our role as scientists, we always aim to be as accurate and precise as possible while still communicating plainly. But in case we didn't do this, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns about what we said in this episode, or you just want to say hi, please reach out to us at biologistbeingbasic at gmail.com or at biosbeingbasic on Twitter or Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and we will do our best to respond. And if you like this episode and potentially want to hear more, please like and subscribe. We want to thank Professor Nevin Kurgan, who is our boss and the director of QBI. And we want to thank UCSF and Gladstone Institutes, who are our employers. I would like to thank Paige, Gina, and Alexa for co-hosting today's episode. And thank you to Alexa Rocourt and Michael McGregor, who are our sound engineers and producers. Our music has been Catalyst and Passport from Purple Planet Music. We could put like some cricket sounds when you mention the list of women. <laughs> totally. Yeah, I like that. Let's point out how little we know about this. Being a woman <laughs> in science who's in her mid to late 30s, you'd think I'd know more about women scientists, but I do There's not. There's a history and science class. There's really a need for that. Yeah. <laughs>